Welcome to AZMCAST, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCAST is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. So we are taking a break from uh, our game show contestant format uh, because we thought we needed a break and not because I couldn't find three people who wanted to spend an hour with me. Uh, I found two people. I found the incomparable Dr. Brian Drummond and Chris Williams. So thank you guys. Oh yeah, My pleasure. Even when I'm late to my own recording, you guys are there for me. I was appreciative. (laughs) Good thing we deleted what we had already recorded. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, uh, we're still going to do a case. You've got a 45 year old male, uh, who comes into the emergency department after a motor vehicle collision. Um, and he's got some shards of glass in his hair. He's got some road rash, maybe got a seatbelt sign. But the big thing you notice is, uh, the deformed and, uh, clearly broken, uh, tib fib that he has, on his lower extremity. And you also noticed the very prominent Nike swoosh on everything that he owns. And you say, sir, are you okay? And he goes, uh, my leg hurts. You go, can you tell me your name? And he says, uh, my name is Tiger. And suddenly a whole whoosh of emotions go through you as you kind of recognize this patient in front of you uh, and uh, realize you have an injury to treat. So Lots of stuff we could probably talk about. It was Brian's idea of like, hey, this is like something we could all legitimately see. Um, For the record, we did not take care of Tiger Woods. But kind of taking care of a VIP patient, especially a sick VIP patient, is fraught with its own uh, issues. Uh, But let's start first with just talking about uh, a uh, neurovascularly compromised limb. So, uh, it's so easy to be distracted by a mangled extremity when it comes in uh, that often that's where our eyes go. Um, when you have somebody that comes in, Brian and Chris, and they've got like a clear extremity trauma that just makes you rot into your gut, uh, how do you kind of get yourself back on track uh, to get those patients resuscitated and really evaluated appropriately? Yeah, I think that goes to just goes to training. And you remember that all traumas are algorithmic for a reason. And sometimes it seems kind of robotic or brainless when we watch uh, traumas unfold in our emergency department, but it's like that for a reason. And, um, you know, you go back to ABCs, it's okay to recognize that there is a potential limb-threatening injury here, and it's okay to make that a high priority, uh, but it's not something that prioritizes above death from airway or exsanguination. 
And so uh, you don't, it does not take a ton of time to, um, to look at the airway, verify the patient has respirations, and then you're right on the circulation. You're making sure they're perfusing their body and you note if they're not perfusing the limb that's affected. You uh, see if they can move everything. If you're worried about spinal injury, uh, obviously C-spine you've addressed when you, when you evaluate the airway. Um, and then you're there and it, it only, it only needs to take a few seconds. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Chris. You're just, you're walking, you know, you're doing the same things you normally do, right? Someone's getting them on the monitor. Someone's getting you a set of vital signs. Someone's getting access and you've already found out the guy's name's Tiger. So his airway is intact. Um, you know, in my assessment, you know, I think it's different, right? If you're in a community setting versus a trauma center, um, trauma centers, I feel are a lot more chaotic than when you're by yourself and you just have a couple people, uh, to help you out. And so those are, in a sense, it's almost easier when there's less people, uh, in some ways, yep. because it's not a responsibility of who's doing what, where's, where are people distracted? And, um, you have multiple leaders, even though we try to designate who the leader is, there's always confliction of who's leading the resuscitation at, at different times. But my, you know, after I assess their airway, I mean, I actually don't even use a stethoscope in most, most of my traumas. I'm just pushing on their chest, their belly, and their pelvis after I've talked to them, and that's it. And then the next thing I would do would be ultrasound. So I would ultrasound them um, if I was worried about their hemodynamics. And then the last thing I would do, knowing I have an extremity injury, would be getting a blood pressure cuff on that extremity uh, to be able to apply a tourniquet. Because I think the biggest thing with extremity injuries um, that people can forget is you can easily ooze out of a venous injury. And people may have been dripping on scene, they could have dripped the whole way in, and they could drip while you're there and you're doing all this other stuff and not paying attention to that leg. So I think it's important, you know, we're going to talk about some ischemic limbs, but I think it's also important um, to put a tourniquet on just about every extremity you can, it doesn't mean that you're putting that tourniquet up. You're just having it available um, because once you do get your hemodynamics assessed, that may be the only source uh, of bleeding and the only thing that you really can control uh, in your setting. So, yeah, I think a general uh, overview um, in these patients and then get through it, like Chris said, and get busy. If it's just the limb, then now you can put your focus on the limb. Yeah, I've had some of these tough patients that come in, they're ranch hands who got thrown for their horse, or it's a biker that got thrown off of his uh, bike at maybe a lower speed, and they've just got a tib-fib uh, that is mangled inside their boot, um, and uh, it's. I've had uh, Highway Patrol bring in little pieces, shards of tibia, as if I was supposed to glue it back on. Um, and, it, you know, they're pretty gnarly looking. And yet the patient's like, doc, you just do something about the pain. I'm okay. I, uh, my, my uh, airway is fine. I'm breathing fine. My belly doesn't hurt. It's just my leg. Do something about the leg. Now, this is a real style point, but I'm curious about this from you all. Cowboy boots and motorcycle boots are expensive. <laughs> and without a doubt, if you come in with a tib-fib fracture, we need to get exposure to your foot and actually see if you've got pulses, if you've got range of motion, let alone like ski boots or uh, snowboard boots that would be hard to just cut off. Um, silly thing. How do you get into those boots? 
my first step is to try and just take it off. And if they're having too much pain, you got to cut it off. But th that's nothing in comparison to the hospital bill they just incurred. A trauma activation by itself is, is a pretty awesome pair of boots. <laughs> it's pretty great. Pair. Yeah, I think it really depends on the type of boots, you know, like in the military, you know, everyone was in combat boots. So there wasn't a, but those are like really high tennis shoes. So they're, they're a lot easier to cut off, you know, and cut the strings versus if you had someone with a, um, you know, a ski boot, right? I mean, that's solid plastic yeah. um, all the way around. Now, the question is, how mangled are they inside said ski boot? I mean, I guess I would pop the clips and take a look and like Chris said, try to get these off. Um, you know, a cowboy boot, it doesn't have any laces. So you're going to have to exert a lot of tug to get a cowboy boot off. So to me, those are probably going to get cut. And I agree that at that point, you know, the bill is uh, <laughs> the boots are the, the least part of the bill that the patient's going to have to worry. Yeah. You know, Ski boots and snowboard bindings, those those actually, you know, they open up fairly well. Um, I, I don't think it'd be as big of a deal to get those off. And obviously you wouldn't be able to cut them. Um, but the hardest boots I've ever had to try to remove uh, was from an on-duty motorcycle officer. Uh, those are tight, high leather uh, boots and they're expensive. And, um, you know, they they do put up a fight. Um, I, I, I think if they said, don't cut my boots, I would say, well, okay, I'm going to pull them off then, but you know, it's up to you as far as your pain tolerance. It really is their, their call at that point. Obviously we're not going to let them hem and haw about it. You got to get it off. It's a really silly question, but you'd be surprised at how often that comes up of yeah. an isolated extremity, extremity injury. And the most important thing is don't cut my boots, doc. Um, I tried yeah. this one, boots and this boots day. and belts. Oh Yeah. And, you know, belts, belts come off so easily. I, it, that, that bothers me a lot when I see someone just cut through a belt. I'm like, you literally could unbuckle it. It's, it takes right. two seconds. Yeah. I feel the same way with, uh, I got absolutely chastised by a nurse one time when I cut off a bra and she goes, do you have a any bra, idea yeah. how expensive these are? There was no <laughs> reason to do that. I was like, I, no, I have no idea. Um, so well, you got to do your bra research. I, I try to spend a few hours every day doing good bra research. So I know the good ones from the cheap ones. The, uh, we, I tried to pair, take a pair of cowboy boots off one time and I touched the guy's toe to his kneecap. And I was like, yeah, sir, I don't think this is going to happen. But, uh, yeah. as, as silly as it is, like, uh, when you've got people that have like combat boots or something that's laced up real tight, just take your trauma shears, go straight up the laces and then pull the tongue back as far as you can. And it'll come off pretty easily. Um, so once you get them exposed, uh, you're going to start feeling for pulses. And uh, I kind of feel like if you've got an extremity injury, my deal is generally I will try to feel for a pulse while someone is getting me the Doppler because I just need to know if there's a pulse and then I can back off and determine whether or not it's a good pulse uh, because I find people sit there and we know this from cardiac arrest research that people feel their own pulse and, or they really are hopeful for a pulse and it's not actually there. Um, so I don't know about you guys. Do you go straight for the, you go straight for the PT or the DPs or do you go for that Doppler? I, uh, I squeeze the, I, I look for capillary refill and you can, you can, you can then follow that up with a DP and PT pulse. I'm really just doing that to keep my skills good at it, but I don't put a ton of stock in it. I think if they're pink perfusing their toes, I really don't care if I feel their pulse as well or not. And um, if you've ever seen an ischemic limb, it looks like an ischemic limb. It's not that subtle. So you just look at it. Does it look 
totally asymmetric from the other one. Uh, and then if you try a good capillary refill, if it looks poor, look at the other one. And um, usually you can figure it out that way. And then I, I'm not a, I mean, I'll, I'll use the Doppler and I, I don't have a problem with the Doppler, but I've almost always got an ultrasound machine in the room. I'll just grab the ultrasound and have a look and you can, you can, you know, tell whether it's got flow or if it's monophasic flow uh, just from an ultrasound. Yeah, I actually have, have them try to wiggle their toes and I have them see if they can feel me touch their toes and then I go for the vascular because to me, the sensation and motor, if they're, they're not doing either of those, you know, that's a that's changing where I think their vascularity is going to be as is. Um, and I agree with Chris, like a quick cap refill before you go. And I'm a DP person. I, I do the dorsalis pedis over the posterior tib. Um, that's where I'm usually looking. And then I agree. I just go to the ultrasound. And if you've already, you know, you're going to probably fast this person anyway, if they have a mangled limb, that's a high mechanism as is. So you're going to want to check the other things to say, Hey, they don't have to go to the operating room right away. I have time to, uh, work on this limb, maybe do a sedation, maybe figure out, um, you know, that's the priority as opposed to the belly or chest. So I agree with the ultrasound and it's, you know, you can, um, use the Doppler, but it's just like Doppler with, babies. It's a lot harder when you can't see inside. And with ultrasound, you can see the vessel. And so if you can't see a circle that you're trying to get a Doppler on, you know, that's a lot harder uh, to do. So. So as we're going down, we're kind of, if it's an obvious mangled extremity, I think that's one thing. If it's just like a fracture, it's a little malformed. I think a lot of, uh, or maybe a penetrating trauma. I know we'll go to ankle brachial index uh, is kind of the next thing. And I gotta be honest, I've never really stayed in the room to make certain the ankle brachial index was correct and not to knock whether or not it's a useful test. It's never given me an answer that I've been able to use to make an emergent decision. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I can't think of the last time where um, my decision to consult or not, or to image or not, or disposition was hinging on the ABI. Yeah, I, th- I think the literature supports it too. You know, the indications, it's kind of an indication creep, right? It's something where, you know, oh, we're supposed to use it for peripheral vascular disease. Oh, we're supposed to use it for a mangled limb. Oh, we're supposed to use it for a, a knee dislocation. Well, has it really been tested in all three of those to show that it changes? And and to be honest, what's the answer going to be? The answer is going to be you're going to shoot at CT angio and look at the vessels yeah. um, is probably more important than your ABI. So I, I don't do them. <laughs> the consultants ask for them and we'll do them, but I, I just don't see that it does anything for me. So if you've got a pulse, I think that's one thing. Uh, When you don't find a pulse, now we're kind of going into a different mode. And I think it's important to remember the anatomy uh, of where the vessels are in the lower leg, uh, that really they all come... Uh, they all come to a fork right at the popliteal vein and artery. And really that's one road in and out. Uh, So from there down is really kind of bottlenecked in there. So I'm always thinking if somebody comes in, they got a bad looking leg, I'm feeling for those pulses to make sure, is there uh, a vessel injury somewhere around that space? Uh, Because that's, that's kind of my biggest area of concern I'm less concerned about like a compartment syndrome from an acutely traumatic injury. I'm more concerned about maybe a knee dislocation, whether it's uh, anterior posterior or maybe a rotational knee dislocation that's put stress on these vessels or a complete mid-shaft tib-fib fracture uh, where the vessels are really stretched over the broken fragments. Um, as, As you're going in, when you don't feel that pulse, 
do you wait for anything before you start to pull on that leg? Or do you just give them a big slug of something and say, here we go, one, two, three. In our trauma bay, I'm usually able to have x-ray there so fast that um, while I'm getting the ketamine, they can shoot a quick scout film and I'll just tell them I need a quick scout film. And that, that really is because I know down, down the road a little bit when I'm consulting ortho or trauma is, is you know, bringing up uh, any questions that I'll have that x-ray there to kind of back me up a little bit. But to, to answer your, your question directly is no, I, I, I start pulling on that limb. And I've had a few of these cases now in the trauma bay where it's either been ephemeral, like a mid-shaft tumor. But the, the most common is actually these uh, either, uh, you know, Taylor or subtalar dislocations, and they'll just they'll just have like a completely white foot and uh, and and not really perfusing the toes at all. Um, and those I I see that not infrequently. And you'll pull it straight, and then it'll it'll pink up again. And that's just a simple slug of ketamine and and yank. That's from like a trimal fracture dislocation. Yeah, yeah. Usually there's yeah. Usually it's a fracture dislocation, but uh, it doesn't have to be. I've seen a few with just straight dislocations that also left them ischemic without fracture. I'll, I'll probably push on, I'll, I'll feel their, um, their femoral pulse just to make sure I have something higher up to say, yes, there's something up here. And I agree. I get the scout film, uh, you know, look at the tib fib. I mean, obviously you're just looking at the leg, right? Where does it seem like the deformity is? Does it seem like it's at the ankle, at the mid tibia, at the knee, the mid femur, the hip, you know, it's kind of like, those are the, main areas that I'm breaking it in because that's going to determine my x-ray and you know there's no way you're going to just yank on these right away it's not like seconds matter at that point right you've mm-hmm. already they've had a transport they've had some time you have 5 10 15 30 minutes to get this taken care of now you can sit on this for 3 hours no that would be poor but you have time to get an x-ray you have time to push some medicines get their pain under control assess what you need to do and, and I think you're you're looking for what what is the injury pattern, right? Is it like Chris said, just a, a dislocation, you know, the talus dislocates, you know, commonly with fracture without, and is very easy to come back into place. Like that's a very easy dislocation to reset. It wants to come back in versus you get a comminuted, you know, 20 piece tibia. Oh my gosh. You know, what are you going to do with that? I mean, that's like from a horrible crush injury, you can straighten it and put a splint in place in a straight like position, but that's, there's not going to hold, right. You're, you're just trying to line it up in a general area. Um, so I think you're really just looking, is this a couple bits that if I move them back in line, I should, um, regain vascular integrity versus vascular integrity could be just totally gone, right? Maybe it's a, you know, it's a bad blast injury or such a crush injury. There's missing pieces of tissue, bony pieces, there may be a chunk of vessel gone and no matter what you do, the alignment's not going to come in, in, in back into place. So that's, I I think it's just assessing that and seeing um, what you need to do at at that point to make your next move. Brian, Brian brings brings up a really good point with, with regards to uh, how much time you you have. And um, I, I, I think sometimes people forget the, the more distal it is, the more time you have and the more proximal, the less time you have, you know, and there's difference between cold ischemic times and warm ischemic times, but unless 
someone is intentionally cold, that's, uh, that's always warm ischemic times. You have the more muscle mass that's involved, the less time you have. But that means that these distal ones that look like they're, you know, losing a little bit of flow to the pinky or the toes, um, you know, you have some time. Yeah. Your warm ischemia time is somewhere around six hours, I think. Um, they definitely like to have less ischemic time, but, uh, you know, muscle starts to degrade somewhere around that point. It's necrotic. It's gone. Um, and you don't want to push it to six hours and think, oh, I got six hours. But do, as Brian said, do you have like a minute to get somebody some ketamine? Do you have a little bit of time uh, to get some of your stuff together? Yeah, you do. Um, unless this has been like a prolonged transport and you're already, you know, an hour and a half behind, in which case you have a lot more issues. Um, you know, we put tourniquets up in the ED for various things. Uh, we'll do uh, tourniquets when we do finger repairs sometimes so that we get a bloodless field. Uh, so you can tolerate a degree of warm ischemia, but you certainly don't want to push it. It's that fine balance of like an, an airway of, yes, this airway needs to be taken right now, but if I rush into it unprepared, I can create a disaster for myself. I have a couple seconds, I have a minute to make sure everything is optimized, and then we can go. I think you bring up a good point too at transport. Like if you're by yourself somewhere, these are things you want to reduce before you transport. Like this is, this is something, you know, we're like, well, don't get the CT scan before you transport them. This would be something that you want to try to improve um, if you have a uh, vascular flow that's compromised before you transfer. And that, and that may even be from South Campus to Main Campus, you know, like a 20, 30 minute ride. It may be important for you to do that. Um, and if it's definitely a longer ride, please, <laughs> you know, it's better that you attempt it, right? If we think about it big picture, it's better that you attempt and fail than you don't attempt and they fail already right? It's just like someone who's dead already. There's nothing you can do to make them more dead, right? You can only improve them. So give it a try before you transport that person a long distance. We had a great case um, a few a couple of years ago at South Campus. This uh, EMS was uh, called for a skill saw injury to the, the uh, femur right at the groin. So they were very confident that it hit the femoral artery. Um, and this, this guy was uh, bleeding pretty profusely. Um, they called and rang down to main campus. And next thing we know, they're, they're crashing into our ambulance bay at South Campus saying, this guy's dying right now. They had put a tourniquet up and uh, it didn't stop the bleeding. The guy was just squirting out. He lost consciousness and was just white in the face. And uh, they, they, they were, his heart rate was jumping up. His shock index was very high. And uh, so they diverted immediately to, to South Campus. And when I ran into to room seven, he actually had two tourniquets up at that time. And I had just prepared a lecture on tourniquets. And so I knew how many turns of the windlass it requires to shut down a vessel. The answer is three. And I, and I, uh, while I'm, you know, kind of moving and talking at the same time, I asked the EMT, I said, how many turns, do you know how many turns you, you put on this? He said three on the top, seven on the second. So they had a total of 10 turns of windlasses on this guy's femur. Uh, 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 and they, they put it right where they're supposed to. If you're going to add a second tourniquet, you want to make it abutting the first one and um, both high, high and tight. And uh, they did it perfectly. 
but this guy was still just bleeding through. And uh, I, I noticed he was wearing jeans that had been cut off. They kind of look like uh, Tobias's never nudes, you know? And so um, uh, they, he was wearing jeans when the accident happened, when EMT got there and they were applying the tourniquets, they cut his pants off, except they didn't cut them off. They just cut them up really high, kind of like Daisy Dukes. And uh, when I undid the, the tourniquet, I felt down in his pocket and there was some, some very hard metal in there. And I pulled it out. He had drill bits that he had shoved in his pocket. Drill bits running exactly parallel with his femoral artery. So they squoze down those tourniquets as hard as they could, but never emptied his pockets out. And they, they, that left the vessel uninhibited by the tourniquets. It was just a, an amazing, amazing case. And so um, we ended up having to uh, go in there and ligate uh, an artery um, it wasn't as common femoral. It was one of the, the two branches of the femoral. I think it was a superficial femoral that he hit and, um, and ligated it and then sent it to, to main campus. But, uh, you know, the, the, if you, if you find yourself doing something that should be working and it's not working, you know, troubleshoot it. Yeah. I got nothing to say to that case, man. That is crazy. Except I know we're not giving points, but extra points for Tobias Funke's never nude uh, jean shorts. Hilarious. Well, let's kind of transition over to medical uh, ischemia real quick, because I feel like when a traumatic ischemic leg presents, like it's usually very obvious, but like a clot uh, is not always as obvious when they present like they can sit in the waiting room they usually bring themselves in um and so like how do you uh kind of keep that in the back of your mind for some of these patients when they come in because unless oftentimes uh shout out to todd alter they're not in their gowns when they come in they're not undressed and they've got a bunch of vague complaints and then suddenly throughout the course of the uh hospitalization somebody finds out oh man this leg looks gnarly so have you been burned by this or is it just me no i've totally been burned by that and um i i think you you have to get a good history and i've had a couple cases where the patient's not showing me ischemia at the exact time that i'm examining the patient and if uh you don't take the time to ask them has this has your leg been turning color or uh, does it seem to have episodes when it turns, you know, white and is very painful and then lets up again? I've had uh, two cases that I recall. One when I was in when I was an intern, um, in in particular, where the lady had presented three times for the same thing, and we never found anything because we were looking for for venous uh, clots. No one bothered to to do an arterial study, and um, and she ended up getting admitted just for for observation. And while she was in the hospital under admission, it happened again. Someone actually saw it, did the arterial study, and she had a, a giant clot that uh, was intermittently kind of circulating around it or something, but she ended up having to go to, to main campus for vascular. I had another case, um, a 19-year-old female who came in with leg pain. She reported swelling. She said the pain has been pretty indolent, like you said, this insidious pain that's just coming and going and wasn't able to give me a great story. I, uh, she's African-American. I asked her if she, if it turned blanched or looked lighter. And she said, not that she noticed. And, uh, but she, she did report swelling, but on further history, I found out her aunt and her mother both had considerable anti uh, or uh, hypercoagulable states. They're both on anticoagulation. Mm -hmm. I asked her if she's ever been tested. She said, no, she ended up having substantial clot 
um, going, uh, it was venous clot, but it went all the way uh, up to the iliacs, the whole leg. Very, very impressive. So I know you both got to go um, pretty soon here at three, right? No, I'm, I'm good until uh, 3.30. Brian, what about you? Same. Okay. All right, so we can keep going on this one then. I wasn't, I was gonna just veer off and kind of cut it if you needed to go earlier. So, um, so you've kind of got the two flavors that Chris kind of mentioned there. You've got the arterial embolus where you've got a pale, uh, cold looking foot, um, or you've got the uh, Phlegmasia cerulea dolens, uh, who I think is the owner of the New York Knicks. If when you've got that kind of clot burden. Uh, that you don't have enough flow and you get a different kind of ischemia. It's not a uh, lack of flow and lack of delivery of substrate. It's lack of uh, flow, venous flow out and lack of removal of all your waste and everything. And you end up with ischemia either way. And so you can go both ways. We often think painful uh, lower leg, painful calf, swollen calf. Well, let's rule out clot because that's the most common thing. Um, but actually evaluating that flow, uh, can be difficult. Um, I'm not a proponent of just throwing around a lactate for absolutely everybody. Uh, but we're getting a lot of them now in these patients that meet surge criteria. Uh, and it's important to remember that not all that produces lactate is a, you know, a septic, uh, poor perfusion. Uh, it can be arterial or venous, uh, occlusion as well. And I picked up a couple uh, in patients who were like intubated uh, or they were altered, uh, sign out patients who the lactate just wasn't clearing. Like we gave the patient the right amount of fluids and the lactate went up uh, or we had the patient on pressors and the lactate is continuing to climb. And that always makes me think of either a necrotic infection that's just producing a ton of lactate, like a necrotizing uh, fasciitis or like a gut uh, ischemia where you've just like killing so much gut. Now you've got a necrotizing infection of the bowel or something that is vasoocclusive somewhere where you're just getting poor perfusion because there's no way to get the blood in, you know, an MI of whatever region that's affected. Um, so as you're kind of evaluating these patients, you've got blue or you've got pale that you're looking for. Sometimes their legs look terrible no matter what. And you've got somebody who's got bad venous stasis ulcers. They've had cellulitis of that leg. It's weeping. It looks gnarly. What is it that makes you pull the trigger and actually do those Doppler studies or do the CTA to look for a vascular cause for this leg problem? Well, I think, you know, a lot of it would be historical, right? What is the pain that they're, you know, trying to assess what their pain is? What has changed, right? If they, is the weeping chronic? Is this new, right? Is there a color change from the, you, I know you have chronic redness or brown. Now, is it more red or pink? Um, you know, is there a difficulty that you're having with ambulation because it's, you know, it's hurting you when you're uh, using your legs. So trying to, you know, kind of assess out why do they come in for that pain? You know, what is the pain complaint that they're coming in for? And I, I think that's the hardest part, right? You because know, all of this in a sense, we talk limb ischemia, I think it all comes under leg pain or swelling. Those are going to be your two generalized complaints that you're going to see. And then you're just making sure whether they have an ischemia, you know, a clot, peripheral vascular disease, or, you know, those are kind of the bad things. Oh, it's just sciatic nerve pain. Oh, no, that's no problem. We can send you home. But 
you're really looking, you know, for those major vascular components. And I think assessing, you know, assessing their distal pulses and cap refill and seeing, you know, how that is and comparing it to the other leg, it would be, it's very rare to have bilateral lower extremity ischemia simultaneously. That is, you know, if you get that, all right, well, that's just good. That's like a one in a zillion case, but uh, you know, they should complain of pain in both legs. So if they're just coming in with the, you know, it's usually a unilateral um, leg pain. And so I think if you're concerned, if you have a concern of their symptoms, you know, it hurts more when they're walking or exerting themselves. It, you're having a decreased pulse that you can feel. You put the ultrasound on, you don't see a dorsalis pedis pulse um, in there. They've had a history of vascular grafts in the past. Maybe they had a bypass um, in there, you know, a fem pop bypass or something. If, if it's enough, then you shoot the angio and look for it. Um, in terms of looking for an ultrasound for a DVT, uh, we do that on so many patients. I don't think that's ever the miss. Um, and even if it is, like if you miss a DVT the first time in the grand scheme, they don't usually die the next day. You know, yes, there's progression and going to pulmonary embolism and the clot burden can go up. But most of those people have not formed a clot like in 24 hours. They're like, oh, look, I have a clot now. I mean, that was kind of like, yeah, it's been going on a couple of days, a couple of weeks. Now my leg's getting more swollen. So, you know, but we don't usually miss on that as much. I think the ischemia component is the harder one. Um, you know, and it used to be angiography, right? Angiography was our study and that was a totally different than CT angio. Um, and so CT angio makes it a whole lot easier than calling in a radiologist and shooting an angiogram uh, of the leg. So um, I think, you know, if, if you're thinking about it, you should just order the study. There's not a decision rule or tool that you should be using. Like, well, I put them in the, you know, the heart score for the limb, limb ischemia. Now I, you know, I shouldn't order the CT. Like, no, just order it. You don't, how many CT angios of the leg do any of us order in a month? I mean, I would be zero to one, I bet, for most of us. And in a year, my guess is no one orders more than five. I mean, I just can't imagine you're ordering that many. Um, Do you guys order more than that? Or maybe I'm just missing them all. (laughs) Well, I will ask all the ultrasound faculty to um, unplug their earphones for a second. But um, I like to just ultrasound probe and look at the artery myself and then make a decision whether it's something I need to get a formal for or not. I think the hardest, um, one of the hardest things for uh, a, a new learning physician is to tease out that chronic vascular disease, chronic lymphedema, chronic venous stasis, intermittent cellulitis patient who just keeps coming back and they ate too much salt the two days prior and they start to swell up a little bit. They get sent to the ER and, um, you, you know, you look through their, their chart and you see just ultrasound after ultrasound ordered again. And, and, and you could probably say maybe 75% of their visits, they're sent home on Keflex for a possible cellulitis. Um, and, and learning how to be a good steward of our systems and of, and of antibiotics with those particular patients is, is honestly, I wish there was a clinical decision rule that I could just hang my hat on, but there, there isn't. And that's just one of those art that you have to pick up during residency and find the style that you want to go with. But like Brian said, a lot of it can be teased out just by history and really pinning the patient down on what's new, what's acute and what's chronic. And then looking through, um, you know, prior records and seeing how often they've had cellulitis that has progressed and been, you know, septic and those are, or do they have any open wounds that predispose them to infection? And those people, you know, I have a little bit 
uh, lighter hand with with de dealing out the uh, the antibiotics and and otherwise I, I just I try to play it smart every time. Um, but for me, leg pain plus swelling doesn't always equal ultrasound, and leg pain plus redness doesn't always equal equal antibiotics. And and uh, I I know that's that's hard to hear as a resident sometimes, but that's just the way it is. I think, uh, you know, a couple of things you can certainly keep in mind that, like Brian said, are the hard and fast, like, don't overthink this, just look, uh, are the compartment syndrome P's. I mean, the compartment syndrome, we always think of those six P's of like, make sure you don't miss these pain, poikilothermia, which is a term I use all the time, uh, pallor, paresthesias, pulselessness, and paralysis. Um, the reason that those are the six P's of compartment syndrome is nothing to do with compartment syndrome. That's the six P's of poor perfusion uh, yeah. to, to a limb. And so keeping those in mind, when they've got bad pain, that's how it starts. Then they start to have uh, poikilothermia and pallor as they get even worse blood flow, paresthesias as they start to get nerve involvement and paralysis, and then pulselessness. Um, so as you're starting to go down that line, if you've got somebody who's got risk factors, you certainly need to think about that. Aaron, you're bringing up a good point because in a sense, for me, the leg ischemia picture that I have is I'm using those, but in a patient with peripheral artery disease, right? Right. If you're, you're the classic, right? It's an old guy who's a smoker who can walk for a block and then he's got to stop because his legs are burning and, you know, causing severe pain. And if he rests, it gets better and then it gets worse. And so I have that, right. That is a true, like he's intermittently going ischemic, right. It's the unstable angina of the leg, right. This is someone, this is someone also, you know, an ultrasound isn't necessarily going to make the difference, but getting them a surgeon at some point in the future will likely prevent, right? We could be preventing that acute emboli uh, when one of those plaques rupture for them and you're going to make a change in their lifestyle. But if you think about it, right? They're having a severe burning pain, like Aaron's saying, and that's what, you know, that's true ischemia. I mean, it hurts. They are not comfortable. They cannot continue to do that. Um, this is not like, yeah, my leg's swollen. Get it checked out, doctor. You know, that's not limb ischemia. You know, they're uncomfortable uh, patients and not happy. Um, and so I think uh, having compartment syndrome, limb ischemia, peripheral artery disease, they're all in a sense, very similar presentations of the same uh, underlying pathology. And this is, I can bring every everything in medicine back to some kind of medical sitcom, but this is uh, the impetus for House and why he walks with a limp. And uh, there was an episode I watched because I used to watch House instead of studying because I figured it was kind of the same. Um, never has it helped me in real life. Um, but uh, he describes like a heart attack of the leg uh, when he's kind of describing why his pain is so bad. Um, so it really is. It's a heart attack of the leg. Uh, torsion is heart attack of the ovary or testicle. Um, I mean, infarctive pain is like nothing else uh, uh, that I've that I've heard people describe. It's really, really intense. It's not that eh, maybe um, I think where you get to that is people like a patient I had recently that basically came in very nice, demented lady and was sent in from one of the local skilled nursing facilities with a, I don't know. Um, and as we're going through, we're like, whoa, your legs are blue, honey. Are they always like this? And she's like, eh, maybe, I don't know. 
Um, do they hurt? Oh, a little. They feel buzzing. Um, and she ended up having ischemia, ischemia of one of the one of the legs. Uh, we just couldn't feel a pulse. But that she had had like chronic peripheral arterial disease that just slowly but surely she got adjusted to, which is probably what happens to our older people that have silent MIs. Is they just all these collaterals start to form, and then finally they give out, and they're like, "Oh, now I'm having a heart attack." Um, so Brian, uh, as we're going through with these, you've got your two options. You've got your ischemia from an arterial source, which is usually that quick, uh, uh, embolic event that they have that, uh, really bad heart attack of the leg. Um, or you've got the DVT version either way. If your pulses suck, you're going to get vascular on the phone. Um, now you alluded to differences in working in like a academic center versus working by yourself in the community. So when you're at this point, you figured out what the diagnosis is, which isn't going to be different if you're in the community versus if you're at an academic center or a university or a trauma center. But this is where the rubber meets the road, right? As getting the vascular surgeon involved and trying to have people come down and assess this patient or transfer. So I'll let you take it away from here because I know you got a lot to say about this. Well, I mean, to, to be honest, you know, if I'm calling a vascular, it's like any consultant, you know, rarely I ask them a question. I'm really telling them what I want them to do. And, and so when you call this vascular surgeon, you should be not like, I think I have a cold leg. Um, could you check it out? Right. That's, that's not the call. The, the call is I have someone who is coming in who I feel has an ischemic leg with a clot at this place on my CT angio. I need you to evaluate them for embolectomy or other um, bypass options. That's what you're calling and asking them to do. And, or if you think it's a thrombectomy, like in the venous side that I have this, you know, you've done a study, you've looked at something and you're explaining to them what you want them to do. And it's usually surgical. Um, if you think this is an IR case, then you should be talking to the interventional radiologist first. You should not talk to the vascular surgeon first. So it's, it all depends on what you think, um, you know, needs to be done in, for these patients. If you think it's peripheral artery disease and you're trying to schedule them an outpatient, then tell them that up front. Like, I think this person needs to be seen. You know, it's COVID times. They may not get seen for a while. Could you see them in the next week or two to evaluate them for a bypass? Um, so just be honest with your consultant. If you truly have no idea what's going on, then say that. But hopefully you've done some evaluation and are not sounding like uh, uh, on the phone. That, that's not going to help you. They're going to eat you for lunch. And so you just tell them what you want them to do. Um, and if you're straightforward, you'll get them transferred and it will go fine. That's such good. I, I love that. I, I honestly, no better advice for calling a consultant than that. Um, you call a consultant, you're, you are painting a picture, you're creating a narrative, and, and you don't create a picture and not knowing what it's going to look like. You don't create a narrative not knowing how the plot twist, where, where the plot twists or how it ends. And, and when you call a consultant, you're, you're, you're allowing them to come along with you in that story, but you know where it's going to end. You need to lead them to it. I, I just love that. It's perfect because uh, nothing will annoy a consultant, especially at like three in the morning, then when you call them up and then you're asking them to make a diagnosis for you, uh, that that's just, they like Brian said, they'll eat you for lunch. 
Yeah, I think, uh, and, and the purpose of a consultant is not to block you. Um, I think we get into that uh, purview sometimes with academics where, I mean, if you're a resident on a consulting service, which we've all been, um, you don't get any extra kickbacks, you don't get any extra pay, you don't get any extra anything. You know, an interesting consult is not as interesting when you're a resident because it's just, it's a lot, it's more work to do. Um, but uh, that's very different in the community where an interesting uh, consult or really any consult is uh, is uh, money in your pocket. You know, it's, it's how you keep your livelihood going and you have a very good relationship with the ED generally or else you don't get as many consultations. Um, but I like uh, Peter Rosen. Uh, we're collecting a bunch of quotes from him that we're putting together into a website uh, to kind of memorialize him. But uh, he, I think he said it pretty succinctly when he said, you call a consultant if you need the patient admitted, you need them to do a procedure that you don't know how to do, or you need them to uh, answer a question that you're not able to answer with what you have available. But you have to call them with a question. And if you just call them to chat, they don't really, they've got other things to do. So um, I, I really like calling and first words out of my mouth, I've got a patient that has an ischemic leg. And if you call, if you call them and say, that's what's going on, the, the last, or the first thing out of their mouth is not going to be, well, do you really? It's like, they're going to hear, I have a patient with an ischemic leg. Great. I'll be right down. I have a patient with an acute abdomen. Okay. I'm coming down. I have a patient that's having a stroke. All right, we're coming. And then they can disagree with you after they've seen the patient. But if you hem and haw about it of like, oh, well, they're kind of, I mean, it's kind of a weird, um, and let's be honest, in academics, uh, there's nothing wrong with saying, hi, my attending would really like you to see this patient, which I know what that's code for. I've used that code myself. And that's fine. <laughs> but in real life, they don't want to hear the story that you present of like, so this is a really nice uh, you know, 85 year old lady who's got a history of diabetes and some hyperlipidemia. And she went to the, uh, she went to Cancun for spring break or, you know, she's a very with it old lady, apparently, as this story starts to unravel. Um, but like, they don't need to hear that. They need to hear, why are you calling me? I've got a lady with an ischemic limb that needs to, that needs to be revascularized. And I need you to come see her right now. And it's very hard to argue with that kind of a cell. Um, I think when we call consultants, it's certainly something we can practice. You can be nice about it. You can, after the fact, and how are you doing? How's everything been? But the first thing they want to hear is, why are you calling me and what do you need me to do so I can prioritize it in my day? So as we kind of come back around uh, to our patient that we started with, uh, Tiger is uh, getting everything set. Uh, he's uh, coming. Uh, we're getting him uh, back out uh, to length and he's got pulses and he's going to go to the OR so thankfully, we've never had to take care of anyone that famous. Um, I haven't. Uh, but, uh, you know, it presents itself with a whole lot of complications uh, because there's a lot of a lot more interplay. The same as it would if you had to take care of uh, someone that you know. Um, it's it's kind of different levels depending on uh, depending on where you're at and the pressures that are on you. But I thought it would be just kind of an interesting opinion from everyone here. And I certainly don't want to trivialize anything that's happened with Tiger Woods and his injury. Um, he's done some really good stuff in this comeback, and I really hope that he comes back from this injury well. Uh, but this is literally something that any of us could take care of. 
And I think that using Tiger Woods as the example mean, you know, shows just that everyone's on a level playing field when it comes to the emergency department. Um, So experiences that I've had and certainly lectures that I've heard about this topic are very telling that we actually take worse care of people who are famous, who are VIPs, and who are people that we know uh, for a variety of reasons. One could be that we uh, do things that they demand and kind of shut off our brains. Another is we have pressure from on high to do things differently than we would actually practice. And the third, especially for people that we know, is we want to be optimistic and hopeful, and maybe we don't actually fully work some of this up and do some of the things that we would do on other patients uh, who were not as famous or not as well known to us. Um, Have any of you come up with that without releasing actual names? um, Have you come up against this with either people that you know within your your circle of friends or the hospital system or people that are generally famous? Uh, yeah, they get the worst of both worlds. Like you said, they will get overworked up and um, over procedured, over medicated um, beyond what the evidence would, would normally indicate. And then they also get under worked up because um, you, like you said, you you kind of hope that they don't have a condition uh, and another way that I've seen that done is honestly, uh, sometimes they'll be cared for by someone who isn't the usual person caring for that, that individual. And, um, you know, I've seen that happen as well, where, you know, uh, uh, an attending who you've never seen in the ER all of a sudden shows up in the ER and is doing things that they wouldn't normally do for a patient. So um, recognizing that VIPs get worse care is one thing, but doing something about it, I have found very hard to do. And to be honest, I don't have a good answer for it. I I have been on shift when I've gotten phone calls from this or that person saying, so-and-so's in the ER, make sure they get really good care. Well, that's kind of code to me for this is a VIP, give them VIP care. And um, I, I don't have a good workaround for that other than um, just, ha- just a mental check to make sure that I am being honest to the patient, honest to myself. And yeah, maybe I spend a little bit more time talking to the person. So at least they feel like they're getting better care. And maybe that's the workaround, but try and try and be disciplined in what you do and don't do. Yeah. I I've been in a couple of these situations, so um, I won't give names, but I can say I have taken care of a president of a small country I have taken care of a uh, head basketball coach and I have taken care of, um, you know, people famous within small communities. So in, in those situations, I I think there's, there's two things that I find are going on. Um, There is one thing within your own mind of how you're going to take care of them. And um, in terms of, I, I found that cognitively I, uh, I do have to slow my thought process down and I do sit and spend more time with them at the bedside. And then I think what I would normally do. And then I think what I may be pressured to do. And I look at those as two competing interests and try to figure out and make a decision of those two things, what I should do. Um, And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I, I think 
depending on the time and the person and the, the reason they're there, you're going to get, um, you know, your care is going to be the best that you can do. You try to do that all the time, but sometimes you're going to have to modify it. Maybe this person traveled 16 hours, you know, to come see you. Right. So I think we do a little bit differently. If someone spent all this time to come see us, maybe we think about as opposed to, Oh, go home and come back tomorrow. If it's worse, maybe we do that test tonight instead of telling them to come back because that's, that's a reasonable thing to do. So I, I deal with my own cognition on these patients, but then I find the other side that you have to deal with. And this is the harder side is the administration side. Um, There are more, like Chris said, there are more administrators that come down and want to know about the patient. There may be press that wants to know about the patient and make phone calls to you. There may be your department head or people in your department that are telling you what to do for said patient. There could be a dean telling you what to do for said patient. And that is difficult. That may be the harder part. What you do is, you know, the, the patients I find... Um, the VIPs are grateful for what you're doing. So that's not the issue. The issue is more the administrative component and they're coming, you know, and putting their pressures on you or they're checking in. Do you need anything? Do you anything? Yes. I need you to stop asking me if I need anything. Cause I said, no, the first three times, or I asked for things the first three times, but they still haven't been handled. So um, in terms of managing that administrative you know, you're going to do what you need to do for these patients. But I do think, you know, take the extra time, slow your process down is important because what you do will be scrutinized. Um, So just take your time, think it through, have a reasonable plan. Just because they're a VIP doesn't mean you have to do everything for that person and give them all the medicine just because they cough, they don't need a pack to go home with. Um, but, you know, think it through. What would you normally do? What is the pressure going to be on me to do? What's the right answer for this um, patient? I, I think the best, um, the people that probably deal with this the most would be our sports medicine uh, colleagues. Because in sports, you're asked to do a lot of things that don't make any sense for players because they're worth millions of dollars and they want that person on the field and they want everything answered right now. And there's pressure from owners and, you know, uh, the team and the, you know, the world who's putting pressure on this player. And so that's probably the most, if you've ever worked in a sports environment um, I did some in Pittsburgh. And so it was interesting seeing how that, played out, you know, on different levels too, you know, a high school level, a college and a professional level. Those are, um, you know, it's easier for you to dominate a high schooler and say, no, this is the right thing for you to do versus, you know, the multimillion dollar first baseman who comes in, who is the MVP of the league. And, you know, they're telling you what to do. So I think these are hard situations and you just take a breath back. You're going to do the right thing for these people but, but slow your mechanism down. That would be of all the things, slow the mechanism down, think it through and what you do will be right. I don't have a whole lot more to add, uh, but I will anyway. Uh, I, I think that when you've got these patients, uh, you have to remember that you're still held to a couple things. You still have HIPAA. Uh, that's incredibly important. 
So for me, part of it is it's really easy not to talk to the press. It's like, no, I have, I have a HIPAA uh, obligation. Um, it's better often when you can kick some people out of the room that don't need to be there and be like, you know, can I please talk to the patient in private? If the patient wants people there, then I think that's fine. Um, it's uh, And that can even extend to administration, which might not make administration all that happy. But if they're telling you what to do, you say, you know, this is between me and the patient. That sounds like it's very heroic and should be on like, uh, you know, um, whatever the new medical sitcom or uh, uh, drama is right now where he stands up to administration. But there is a point at which you have to actually discuss with the patient. But I think what Brian says is very important is remember that you're first treating a patient and so like talk to the patient and explain all the things. I think the VIP treatment that I give people is the same as I give anyone who might cause some trouble or might, you know, come back around is really to spend some more time with them. I find that most people are reasonable if you can spend the time with them. The hard part is finding the time to spend with them. Um, I asked some VIP patients or like someone who is sent in, uh, for something that I'm like, I don't really think I'm going to be able to help this. Ask them about them a little bit more. Uh, just talk about, you know, uh, you know what they do. Talk about their their history. What do you What do you do for a career if you're retired right now? You know, where do you work? What kind of things do you do? And just kind of talk with them a little bit. That's frankly what people want, and they tend to complain less when you show that you care about them as a person. Um, you will get people that come in and say, "This is exactly what I want," and you have to have that shared decision-making with them. And sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. Um, but when you've got somebody that comes in, if you, like Brian said, you slow down, you pay a little more attention to them, you pay a little more attention to your chart, uh, just because you know that like most patients you see, you're going to take good care of them and they're going to go and they're going to do fine. Uh, but the ones that you perceive might come back again, you're going to spend a little more time talking with them about return precautions. If it's an abuse case, you're going to spend a little more time on that chart because you're worried that someone might bring it up with, uh, you know, legally later, whether you're called to a deposition or anything like that. Um, and if it's a VIP patient, you spend a little extra time with that patient so that you can give them good care and you don't have to spend more time in front of an administrator later justifying why you were rude or standoffish or anything like that. And so anytime I know there's a VIP coming in, I take a deep breath. I go to the bathroom. I make sure that I've got, you know, I plan in my head, I've got 15 minutes to spend with this person and we'll go in and we'll take as long as it's going to take. And I try to give them a good plan and I try to do some shared decision-making um, but you know, all in all, I think that it's really easy, uh, to, uh, try to blow through this. Like it's another patient to go in antagonistically sometimes that they're a VIP and we don't do VIP treatment in the ED. Um, I mean, we do, we take care of our own, uh, a lot, uh, faster than we would someone who came in from the outside. If something happens to one of our nurses or our docs, we would absolutely give them, uh, you know, faster care or maybe do some extra consults or something. Um, but I think it's recognizing what your own biases are before you walk in and then trying to remember that you're going to treat these patients like patients. I think looping back with what Chris had said, you know, that, well, I treat all my patients the same and, and you're try and you try to, um, I think with the VIP patients, you have more biases, both cognitive and outside biases 
that you have to take. The, we're not saying that you shouldn't take the time with your other patients, but you should take your time because there's going to be more biases that is going to influence your decision. You're not going to be able to just see and fire and, you know, do your quick thinking that you normally do, which you're good at, right? You've been, you train for this. This is how you, you know, develop your haggis. This is how you, it gets, you know, ingrained. You recognize, you, you repeat and you, and you know where your triggers are, but in these patients, you know, you're going to be biased more than any other patient. And you have to understand that. And so that's where you have to slow it down. And so we're not saying like, you know, as Chris said, I treat all my patients the same. We're asking you to do the same thing. We just don't want you to let those biases take you askew and off of your normal game plan. So that's why I I just, I didn't want to make sure that like, oh, we're treating them special. But I think Chris makes a very good point is you do treat all your patients the same, but there's some that are biased, just like if you treated your colleague, right? They're, you could say they're a VIP, but they're also, you know, maybe it's just the, the ENT doc at your hospital. They're, you don't may not know them, but they're a colleague that you work with. You may treat them kind of like a VAP just because you want to give them a little bit better care, or maybe you're biased like, oh my gosh, I've had great interactions with them. They've helped me every time. Now I got to make sure I do the same for them. Yeah. Um, maybe so maybe just, they come in, they say, you know, I really want a CT of my neck because I'm worried about this. And you go, well, it's going to be really hard for me to talk you da- out of that. So fine. Whereas somebody who didn't have that medical training, you might say, look, I really don't think you need a CT of your mm-hmm. neck. Um, the two things I'll kind of close on is uh, two of the biggest pitfalls I can think of, uh, one of which is being starstruck a little bit. Um, I did not care for, uh, but I did see one time, uh, our basketball coach, Lute Olson, uh, who passed away, uh, last year, um, in the hospital, uh, which I think is not a HIPAA violation now because he's gone on. Uh, but, uh, and I was starstruck and I went in just so I could give him a pillow because I wanted to meet Lute Olson. Uh, and I'm a huge U of A basketball fan. So you can be blindsided because you're starstruck. Uh, and maybe lose the fact that you are actually supposed to be providing care for these people. Um, and then the other end of it is you have to make sure that you are very cautious, especially with as fast as information spreads on social media with what you say about these interactions. You have to stuff it deep down inside and make sure that you don't commit a HIPAA violation on someone who's uh, either uh, very famous or maybe locally famous, as in just someone all of your friends know. Um, you will take care of colleagues. You will take care of people that you know. You'll take care of family members of friends. And you have to be so cautious on what you say. Uh, even acknowledging that you saw them in the hospital is a HIPAA violation. Uh, so be very cautious with what you say. Certainly don't post anything on the internet or Reddit about who you took care of because it will come back to bite you in a big way big fines, licensures, board complaints, lots and lots of bad things, just not worth it. One of our uh, graduates uh, who works out at uh, the hospital, the rich and famous Cedar sinai I uh, gave him a couple margaritas at ASAP one year and said, hey man, who's the most famous person that you've taken care of? And he didn't bite. So good to you uh, <laughs> for not doing that. Um, <laughs> but uh, he did say that it's very difficult taking care of some of these people who you know, are used to getting everything their way all the time. Um, and you have to just be a master communicator, which I think is something we all do in the ED very well anyway. 
as we kind of meet people, establish a very quick rapport and trust with them. To close this out, uh, Tiger, we wish you a quick and speedy recovery and uh, a couple more majors uh, to close out your career. Uh, thanks everyone right. for listening. And next month, we got a special treat. We're going to go back to the competitive format and it is resident versus resident, which I am nice. so looking forward to. So, All right. Take care, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day.